Let's pray, please. Father, thank you for giving us the treasures of your holy word. May we receive their truths with faith and love, lay them up in our hearts, and practice them in our lives. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Please turn on your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. <coughs> Excuse me. 2 Timothy chapter 4. I wanted to do a one-week detour from the law, the Ten Commandments, and look at this passage in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Our scripture reading will be verses 1 through 8, uh, but my sermon will just cover verses 6 through 8. But I just want you to see some context. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, and I'll be preaching on verses 6 through 8. So beginning at verse 1, this is God's word. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. May God bless the reading of his holy word. One part of being a pastor that I really was not prepared for was the fact that I get to have a front row seat to some of the most significant events in people's lives. So many of the little kids in this church, I baptized. A lot of the weddings here, I did. I've done a lot of funerals too. And I suspect I may do some of your funerals. There was a stretch of time recently where I baptized some newborns here at the church, and shortly after that, I preached at my father's funeral. Eight days after that, I did a wedding. Talk about a whole array of emotions, a whole, the whole gamut of what people go through in life and death. Our lives are punctuated by these life-altering events in the providence of God, and we can get ready for some of them. We plan weddings. We prepare for new children. We prepare for marriage. Babies have due dates. Weddings have dates. Death is different. For some, it will surprise them when it happens. They will not be ready. Every time I do another funeral, I do another gravesite, I walk through the cemetery and look at all the headstones of people that died younger than me. For some, circumstances will give them an idea it might be coming soon or it will be coming soon. In the end, the fact is, we don't know how much time we have left to live. We don't know the date of our own death. Some people may be blessed with a general idea it's coming soon because they're sick or something, but many will not. 2 Timothy was Paul's final letter before he died. Paul knew that his time was very short in this world. And this is what makes 2 Timothy such a power-packed book of the Bible. 
The warnings about terrible people in the church are there for Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. That passage is absolutely soul-stirring. He tells them, watch out, Timothy, the days are coming. People are going to be traitors and prideful and headstrong, and you're going to have all these kinds of wicked people to deal with. Paul's glorious statement at the beginning of 2 Timothy, where he says that Jesus has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. It's so encouraging. Death does not have the last word. Jesus abolished death by rising from the dead. Paul never seemed to be able to help himself. Every time he ever thought about the grace of God, he always took that opportunity to make one more shot at works. Works have nothing to do with it, he says. 2 Timothy 1.9, Jesus, who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, he says. The former Pharisee, Paul, always repudiated works as having anything whatsoever to do with justification or with getting into heaven. The blood and righteousness of Christ alone is what saves us. We receive that benefit by faith alone. Faith simply is resting on the finished work of Christ. Faith is believing that Jesus' righteousness will get me into heaven, and it's not believing that my works will. Paul made sure to mention this grace that came to the elect before time began, he said. He loved that truth. Before the foundation of the world, it was all planned. Paul exhorts Timothy in chapter 2. He tells him, what I did for you, you need to do for other men. I trained you to be a pastor. Timothy, tag, you're it. You need to do the same thing for other men. Train them for the ministry yourself. Paul tells Timothy, suffer hardship as a good soldier of Christ. He tells him, work hard. Make it obvious to everyone that sees you and knows you that you're getting better and better and better at rightly dividing the word of truth. In other words, let your skill in scripture be constantly growing. He tells this young pastor, flee from youthful lusts and foolishness. Grow up and be a man. Stop thinking, I want to be the next reformed celebrity. No, flee youthful lusts. Just be faithful. Just be faithful in what God calls you to do. Get rid of lust, get rid of pride. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and, and peace. He tells them, be gentle when you have to correct people, hoping that maybe God will grant them repentance since they've been taken captive by the devil to do his will. In chapter 3, Paul reminds Timothy of the scriptures that he'd been taught from the time he was a baby by his mother and his grandmother. Remember, Timothy did not have a Christian father, but he had a Christian mom and a Christian grandma, and they taught him the faith, Lois and Eunice. Those scriptures alone, he tells him, are able to make him wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Scripture is God-breathed and as such is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, Timothy, so that you as a man of God would be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Do you want to be perfectly equipped to teach the Christian faith to people? Then turn to the God-breathed scriptures. Do you want to be a more godly husband, a more godly wife, a child, a sibling, a Christian, an elder, a worker, a deacon? Turn to the God-breathed scriptures. Do you want to be the best employee at your job that that employer's ever had? Always reliable, always dependable, always on time, always hardworking, always having integrity. Then turn to the God-breathed scriptures, Timothy. They will equip you and everyone in your ministry to be all these things. And then Paul gives him that solemn charge. Some of the last words that this dear man of God ever wrote. Look back at verse 1 again of chapter 4. 
And then he says, could a charge be any more in your face than this? I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. You know what that means? It means when it's convenient and inconvenient, when people like it and when they don't, you just stay the course. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And if you are like Paul here and blessed with the knowledge that in a few weeks, you're going to die. And you had just a short paragraph to express your thoughts. What would you write? What would you write? If you knew two or three weeks from now, you're going to die. What would you say about your life? The only life that you have ever lived and ever will live. How would you describe it? You know, I did a few Google searches, people's dying words. I was really determined to try to share some stuff with you. I didn't find anything worthwhile. Nothing. I thought about including some quotes, but they're just, they were meaningless. And they reflect the utter futility of life without Christ. Life dying with no hope. When people see their end coming, it does tend to make their hypocrisy disappear though. And they face hard facts and truths that perhaps they've spent a lot of time trying to hide from themselves. The bottom line is this, and I hope you remember this. A human life that is spent glorifying the Savior who redeemed that life is the only path to dying well. A human life that is spent glorifying the Savior who redeemed that life is the only path to dying well. Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul the Apostle and Christian, was such a life. Consumed as he once was with his own righteousness and goodness, which he was certain was going to get him into heaven, his life ended. That life, that former life, ended when he met Christ. And he repented and he believed the gospel. That shattering moment, it reoriented everything in his life. The entire purpose for which he lived radically changed. You know, the great Heidelberg Catechism, one of those great Reformation catechisms. It has one of the greatest statements summarizing the Christian faith, the opening question that's ever been penned by human beings. It asks, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And I love the opening phrase of the answer. The answer is, here's my only comfort in life and in death, that I am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? My only comfort in life, I don't belong to me anymore, but I belong to Christ. Remember that glorious response that Paul wrote to 11 chapters of in-depth theology in Romans, Romans 1 through 11, when he talks about the, the fall and sin and grace and justification and sanctification and God's sovereignty and his unconditional electing grace and the glorious salvation that we have in Christ's divine righteousness. Remember what he says in response to that, Romans 12, 1? He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Since my suffering 
My works can't do anything to save me at all. What's my reasonable response to being redeemed then? Everything I am, everything I've got left, every second that I've got left to live, I'm not a dead sacrifice or a bleeding sacrifice. I'm a living sacrifice. I've got a few years to work with here. What can I do for God? That beautiful notion of the rest of our lives in Christ is now a living sacrifice because the old version of me died, is gone, and good riddance. Now I'm a Christian. I belong to the Lord Jesus. Now my life is a living, breathing sacrifice to him, for him. That beautiful notion of being a sacrifice. It's what Paul begins with in verse 6 of 2 Timothy 4. If you're a believer, I encourage you, consider your life that way. Whatever little bit of time you've got left before you're dead in the ground is a sacrifice of thanksgiving to God. You're a living sacrifice of worship to him. No longer do we bring an animal or a blood offering. Jesus did that once for all at the cross. And therefore, our only reasonable service is everything I've got. My strength, my time, my talents, my treasures, everything, all my abilities, my body, everything belongs to the Lord Jesus now. And Paul saw his life once he met Christ as one big living sacrifice to God. And that's why he begins his final summation of his life. Look at verse 6. You see it? I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. Now, why is he telling Timothy that? He just said to him, verse 5, back up to verse 5, you see it? But you, Timothy, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Now, why is he telling him that? Why is he telling him, be sober, endure hardship? Because evil, selfish, traitorous people who love pleasure rather than God are going to be in the church. So Timothy, he's telling him, brace yourself for this. People will decide suddenly that they don't want sound doctrine anymore. They'll decide suddenly that their ears are itching for something else. We want you to tell us something else, Timothy. And he's telling him, don't do it. Timothy, you stay the course. You endure what it takes to remain faithful. You preach the word in season and out of season, when it's convenient and inconvenient. You reprove, rebuke, exhort with patience, instruction, and teaching. And Paul tells Timothy, stay the course. And why is he saying that? Because I am about to die. My time's over. What I taught you, you need to find faithful men and do for them what I did for you. I'm already being poured out, he says, as a drink offering. And that image comes right out of Numbers chapter 15. The the pouring out of hens of oil as drink offerings as part of the the finality of the sacrifice of worship. Paul's saying, yep, the final scene, the final closing offering, I'm about to be poured out. And you know, Paul probably knew what kind of death he was going to die. A lot of commentators think, you know, because beheadings were gruesome deaths and were so bloody and so much blood was spilled that he may have been referring to that. I'm about to be poured out. Yeah, my whole life's about to be poured out as a drink offering. He wondered if perhaps he might die when he was in prison when he wrote Philippians. And he said to the church at Philippi from jail, Philippians 2.17, yes, and if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, etc., he saw that. My final scene is probably going to be getting killed. And if I get killed because I'm a Roman citizen, I'm going to be beheaded. So he's telling them, I might die here, but he, he said he might die there at the church in Philippi. But now in 2 Timothy 4, he's sure it's about to happen. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. So his blood indeed was going to be spilled. It was going to be dumped out. 
as an offering ultimately to the Lord. And Paul had already suffered greatly throughout his life in the service of Christ. In a lot of ways, his life had been a big sacrifice already. He'd been beaten with rods numerous times, scourged, shipwrecked. He had many sleepless nights. He had great hunger and thirst. He was often cold and exposed to the elements, etc. I think Paul was probably a pretty surly looking guy at the end of his life. He told the Galatians in chapter 6, verse 17, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Hatred is often the lot of those that are truly committed to the truth of God in Scripture. Those who will not waver from it, they're going to be hated. And sometimes they're going to be so hated that they're beat up a lot. They feel the antithesis. They feel the conflict with the world the most. And Paul's life was just like the lives of all true believers are supposed to be a living sacrifice. And what do sacrifices do? They die. So often what are we called to do? Suffer, to die for the cause of Christ. And sometimes bits and pieces of the sacrifice are taken by our enemies through beatings, scourgings, things like that. Part of Paul's being a living sacrifice meant the scars on his back. I'm sure he was very scarred up. Remember, he had been stoned and drug out of a city and left there. They thought he was dead. I'm sure he got hit in the head and had marks on his body from those beatings. His living sacrifice was the hunger and thirsting and freezing cold he endured, the ill treatment of the gospel's enemies. Dear congregation, please know that if you are committed to biblical truth, listen please, the fear of man and the pious smokescreen of, quote, not being labeled a Pharisee, end quote, will tempt you to dial back your biblical convictions. And so what Paul told Timothy, I say to you, don't do it. Stand for what's true. Even if the rest of the Christian world says you're a Pharisee. We have a great example in the word of God, Paul. He never knuckled in on anything like that. And dear ones, that's why he died so well. That's why he died with a clear conscience. That's why he welcomed death as a friend, as the gateway to blessedness and joy and peace with Christ. At no point in his ministry that we know of did he ever compromise the truth. He didn't engage in ecumenical activities and outreach with the Judaizers or the Gnostics. He didn't emphasize what they had in common, did he? Paul was steadfast in the truth. He did not waver from it. He was immovable in his doctrine. He showed integrity in his doctrine. This final stage of his days in this world, he sees his final offering to Christ, a drink offering. And Paul makes that offering gladly. I pay it gladly, he's thinking. You see the second part of verse six, the second half? He says, and the time of my departure has come. Isn't that wonderful? He doesn't say, I'm about to die. He just sees it as a departure. Death really isn't death for a believer anymore because death has been abolished. It's been conquered, destroyed, erased. Our physical death in scripture, the physical death of a true believer is likened in the Bible to falling asleep for a short time. And Paul speaks of it here as a departure. You know, when you fly on a jet, Somewhere when you drive into the airport, there's a sign that says arrivals and a sign that says departures. And if you're reconciled to God through Christ, death is just a departure. It makes me think about heaven. Heaven doesn't have a departure sign. It only has an arrivals sign. 
When I was a seminary student in Pearl, Mississippi, I worked at a local church during those nine months, and I made friends with an elderly couple uh, whom I stayed in contact with and visited a couple times. And a few years ago, the lady emailed me and told me her husband had died. And he'd been sick for a while, and she told me in an email, she said, that she said to him while he was laying there on his deathbed, she said, sweetheart, I can hear the glory train coming. This glorious statement in 2 Timothy 4, 6, the time of my departure has come, made me think about the glory train that came and got him. The glory train's coming for another departure toward heaven. And Paul tells Timothy, endure hardship, be sober, do the work, fulfill your, mis- your ministry. Here's the baton. I'm slapping it down in your hand. I'm departing to be with Christ. And Paul is doing what the vast, vast majority of those people whose dying words I read this past week just could not do. Paul has no feeling of futility. No regrets. No despair. No hopelessness. No sense of waste in his life. He's dying with a rare, calm assurance. I did what I was supposed to do. And the next verse is encouraging, it's sobering, convicting, it's sad, and it's wonderful. But Paul's confidence is the reason he's facing his departure with such poise and calm and excitement. Look at verse, uh, the first part of verse 7. I have fought The good fight. Why is he so excited about being poured out as a drink offering and my departure is at hand? I fought the good fight, he says. That Greek word, I love that Greek word that's translated fight. It's the Greek word agonizomai. I've agonized. Do you realize that? The Christian faith, the Christian life is agonizing. Have you felt that? In your battle with sin, your battle with heresy, your battle with... Everything else that you deal with in life, your battle with with your own heart, your own sinful desires, it's agonizing. And Paul's saying, I have agonized the good agony. He uses the noun and the verb. I agonized the good agony. Christian life is a war. It's a fight. It's an agonizing war. It's an agonizing fight. And what is the fight that is good? We normally think, well, fighting, isn't fighting bad? But there are three enemies that we always fight, and it's an agonizing battle. The world, the flesh, our own sinful desires, and the devil himself. And the thing is, none of us ever fight that good fight perfectly. But remember, half the New Testament is a theological response to errors. Half the New Testament is itself a fight against false doctrine. There is an agonizing war, an agonizing fight against false doctrine. There is an agonizing fight against our remaining indwelling sin. That that war just goes on and on and on. Don't you get tired of it? Don't you get tired of your own battle with your own besetting sins? There's an agonizing war against the devil and against his agents very often who infiltrate the church and come in by stealth to spy out our liberty and to bring us into bondage to false doctrine. There's that agonizing battle. Now we all make errors, we all make mistakes, and we all sin in this fight. But dear ones, We got to fight. So many, it seems, these days, they don't want any part of the fight. Someone's going to think I'm a big meanie. I don't want people to think I'm mean. They just want to watch from the sidelines. Listen to this quotation from Theodore Roosevelt in 1899. Quote, It's not the critic who counts, 
Not the man who points out how the strong man stumbled or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, who does actually try to do the deed, who knows the great enthusiasm, the great devotion, and spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the worst, if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly. Far better is it to dare mighty things, to win glorious triumphs, even though checked by failure, than to rank with those poor spirits who neither enjoy nor suffer much because they live in a gray twilight that knows neither victory nor defeat. End quote. Don't live your life in a gray twilight of neutrality. I'm, when it comes to religion, I'm like Switzerland. I'm just neutral. I remember having an email exchange with a philosophy professor from a local college who emailed me that, I, I, I'm not for or against, I'm like Switzerland. I'm like, well, you're boring. <laughs> the Christian life, the defense and confirmation of the gospel of our Lord, evangelism, counseling, leading family worship in your home, fighting against your own selfish heart and your desires in marriage, laboring for good relationships in your local church. It's exhausting stuff. But so many professing Christians will not try to fight the good fight for those things. And I want to tell you all something. If any human being in the history of time had good reasons to throw up his hands and say, man, you know what? I'm sick to death of being betrayed, forsaken, stabbed in the back, beat up, lied about, slandered. It was Paul. Look down at verse 16 real quick. You see verse 16 there? He says, at my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. That's kind of sad, isn't it? Paul's ready to charge forward. Let's defend the gospel. And he's got his buddies with him. My brothers, my brothers in the fight. And he charges forward to defend the gospel and turns around and they're all gone. They all left. They fled. Paul founded a whole confederation of churches in Galatia. And they very quickly deserted the true gospel for a soul damning hybrid of justification by faith and works. Paul must have been like, what is wrong? In fact, he said that in Galatians. You stupid Galatians, he says. You foolish Galatians. Don't you remember what I said when I was there? Paul needed to go to sensitivity training big time. <laughs> he founded the church at Corinth. And then he finds out, yeah, they're suing each other in court in front of unbelievers. And they've got little factions in their church. The people that follow Peter and follow Jesus and follow Pauls and follow you. And Paul says, were you baptized in my name? What is wrong with you all? Well, how can you act like this? They're allowing gross sexual sin to go unaddressed in that church, and they're getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. Paul had every reason to go, you know what? This is not worth it. I want to go live in a library and just chill out and read and study and write books or something. Jewish and Gentile Christians, man, they just could not get along. Every letter he wrote, guys, got to get along. We're all one in Christ Jesus. There's neither barbarian, Scythian, slave, nor free, Jew, nor Gentile. Man, we're all one in Christ Jesus, guys. Come on, you guys got to eat together. You got to sit together. And they didn't like each other. Paul spoke well of his friend Demas. Remember Demas? In Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, he tells the church there, my friend Demas sends his greetings. He sends his greetings. Love that guy. Um, look at verse, uh, look down there at uh, verse 10. Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. 
Seriously? Demas too? I can't think of anybody who had more reasons to say, you know, I've really been hurt by the church. So I just don't get too involved anymore than Paul. But you know what? He never said that. He never thought that. Never even crossed his mind. His thinking was, while I'm alive and there's breath in my body, I'm going to make it better. I don't care if I have to walk around with 50 axes between my shoulder blades. I'm going to keep going. Instead, at the end of his life, after all these troubles, all these betrayals, all these backstabbings, all these desertions, he says, I have fought the good fight and I did not give up. I pray all of us here can say that. That same thing, no matter what happens. And then he says this, see the next phrase of verse seven. I have finished the course. Christian life is a race. It's like a track event. It's a race against evil, against our sin, against worldliness, against compromise, against time. I remember hearing a wise man talking about counseling his own son. His son was taking a math class and the math class was just killing him. He kept saying, dad, I'm falling behind. I'm falling behind. I'm falling behind. And the dad would say to his son, son, you got to get out in front of it. You got to get out in front of it and stay in front of it. I like that. Dear ones, when it comes to sin, theological error, trends in the church that are bad or unbiblical, you got to get out in front of it. You got to run up ahead of everybody and make sure that you're not overrun because it's a race. I heard a pastor tell the story. This pastor had been a track star when he was in college and he was part of a really great four by 400 meter race team. And they were favored to win this huge track event and they won the first three legs and the last guy was their fastest guy. And the other three guys, they're already jumping up and down and cheering. He's got the baton. He's going around the bend. And all of a sudden the guy stopped and sat down. And they all thought, oh my goodness, he must have gotten hurt. I wonder if he pulled a hamstring. And he ran out there to the guy and said, what, what, what's the matter? What's the matter? And he looked up and said, I just got sick of running. He said, I wanted to smack him silly. I just didn't want to run anymore. If God grants us long lives or short lives, I just want to encourage you. Finish. Finish well. Don't come around the bend at the end of your life and sit down. Don't let yourself drift away into bad habits or become reclusive. And I've told you all many times how thankful to God I am for my parents. For my dad's funeral, I'll tell you, stepping back into that evangelical free church that I grew up in, and was baptized in, it was soul-stirring. And I looked into the eyes of people I had not seen since I was 18 years old. 30 years have come and gone. And it was them, just a lot older. And they're like, are you Pat Hines? I'm like, no, Pat Hines had hair. (laughs) (laughs) So many people. They loved my dad when I was 18. They still loved him when I was 48. That was still their church. Those people were still their people. And so let all of us, dear congregation, let's strive to be faithful as Christians, wherever he takes us, even if it's to a new church or a new time or a new location at times in our lives. Be a consistent fixture among the people of God. Those are your adopted brothers and sisters. You're going to have to be with them for eternity anyway. Might as well get used to it here. Don't. (laughs) But... But they won't annoy you in heaven, I promise. <laughs> and, and neither will I. <laughs>
Don't start the race and in the final turn, sit down. Finish the race. Finish the course. Paul says, I fought the good fight. I have finished my race. And believe me, I want to tell you all something. I know the temptation to give up. I've had so many days and nights, so many seasons where I've thought, what's the point? Sometimes you live your life for a season. Sometimes it seems for years in Psalm 88, where the last line of that psalm is, darkness, darkness is my only companion. But I want to tell you, Psalm 84 is just a few psalms earlier, and that one's way more joyful. Sometimes you live in Psalm 88. Why do those seasons of pain and disappointment, those terrible feelings of futility overtake us at times? I have no doubt Paul went through things like that. He got discouraged and down. Why does that happen in this race? Here's why. To try our love and to test our commitment to Jesus, to see if we'll cleave to him to the end. Those terrible seasons where the dark knot of the soul lays hold of us, I want to tell you all, that is not a sign that God has forsaken you. It's God teaching you how to live upon him in your distresses. They are divine invitations to us to call upon him, to rest upon him, to find peace and comfort in his promises in ways we never knew possible or never needed to. You know, when hopeful and Christian, at the very end of Pilgrim's Progress, when they come to the river of death, they're told by the shining ones, After they ask the question, is there any other way around this? The shining ones say, there's only been two that have found that way, Enoch and Elijah. The rest of you have to die. So, Christian and hopeful, they march into the river of death. And Christian loses all hope. And he thinks, there's no possible way I'm going to get into the gate. And God doesn't love me anymore. And I have no hope of going to heaven. But hopeful is not like that. Hopeful is different. And hopeful is holding on to Christian as he's sinking in the water. And here's what happens. Hopeful says, brother, I see the gate and men standing by to receive us. But Christian answers, it is you. It is you that they wait for, not me. For you have been hopeful ever since I knew you. And Hopeful says, and so have you. But Christian says, ah, brother, surely if I were right, he would now arise to help me. But now for my sins, he hath brought me into the snare and hath left me. And Hopeful said, my brother, these troubles and distresses that you go through in these waters are no sign that God has forsaken you, but are sent to try you, whether you will call to mind that which hitherto you have received of his goodness and live upon him in your distresses. Then I saw in my dream that Christian was in thought for a while. To whom also hopeful added these words. Be of good cheer. Jesus Christ maketh thee whole. And with that Christian broke out with a loud voice. Oh, I see him again. And he tells me when thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. Then they both took courage. And the enemy was after that as still as a stone until they were gone over. Christian therefore presently found ground to stand upon, and so it followed that the rest of the river was but shallow. Thus they got over. I'll read that part to you because I have no doubt whatsoever. You're already thinking. I already failed too much. I already sat down in my race. It's too late for me. And I'm gonna tell you, It's not too late for you. Jesus Christ maketh thee whole. 
He will come around the track and pick you up and put his strong shoulder under your arm and put your arm around his strong back and carry you hobbling across the finish line no matter what. Philippians 1.6, Paul said to that little church, I'm confident of this very thing. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. You will say with Paul, I have finished the race because Jesus will make sure that you finish it if you belong to him. Paul describes the Christian life as a race that an athlete runs in. In Acts 20, when Paul exhorted the Ephesian elders, though, there, he told them that he didn't mind bonds, I don't mind afflictions, as long as I can finish the race of solemnly testifying to the grace of God. He said in 1 Corinthians 9, he talked about the battle that he went through in this race. He says that he ran in such a way as not without aim, that he boxed in fights in a way that he was not hitting the air that he beat his body and brought it into subjection to the service of Christ, that he should not be disqualified. I want to tell you all, don't be discouraged. The same battles and the same discouragements and the same dark nights of the soul have been exercised and seen by many of your brothers and sisters throughout all of history. In the fight that is the good fight, you're going to get punched. You're going to get bruised. You're going to be sore. I want to tell you, when that happens, you dust yourself off and get back in the fight. Don't be down and out. I, I want to promise you, God will help you. God will help you. See the last phrase of verse 7? I have kept the faith, he says. Whew, what a great phrase. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. What's he talking about? The contents of the Christian faith, the doctrines of Holy Scripture. They did not change for Paul. They stayed the same. They didn't change on his watch. We are to be immovable in our theology, in all those things. In our doctrine, we are to have integrity and incorruptibility, says Titus 2.7. That means soundness and integrity in your theology. The gospel that we preach today is the gospel we preach tomorrow. We do not get bored by truth. We are content and satisfied in it. We keep the faith. You know, one of the best chapters of a book I have ever read in my life is lecture number 16 in Charles Haddon Spurgeon's book, Lectures to My Students. That chapter is titled, The Need of Decisions for the Truth, meaning the need for people to have conviction. Spurgeon noticed a very strange trend going on in his day back in the 1850s and 60s that people stopped preaching the truth as true. They stopped preaching God's word as this is what the Lord says. Instead, everything became, now my particular take on this is this. And let me, let me, let me share my views with you on this. And the, there's all these other views too. Aren't you glad that it doesn't happen today? <laughs> Spurgeon says this, quote, we ought to preach the gospel, not as our views, but as the mind of God. The testimony of Yahweh concerning his own son and in reference to salvation for lost men. If we had been entrusted with the making of the gospel, we might have altered it to suit the taste of this modest century. But never having been employed to originate the good news, but merely to repeat it, we dare not stir beyond the record. You see what he's saying? We didn't invent it. God did. Our job is simply to proclaim it. And then says Spurgeon, 
What we have been taught of God, we teach. If we don't do this, we are not fit for our position. We have to deal with God, whose servants we are, and he will not be honored by our delivering falsehoods. Neither will he give us a reward and say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast mangled the gospel as judiciously as any man that ever lived before thee. We stand in a very solemn position, and ours should be the spirit of old Micaiah, who said, As the Lord my God liveth before whom I stand, whatsoever the Lord saith unto me, that will I speak. Says Spurgeon, neither less more than God's word are we called to state, but that word we are bound to declare in a spirit which convinces the sons of men that whatever they may think of it, we believe God and are not to be shaken in our confidence in him. End quote. I have kept the faith, meaning I knew what it said and I taught it. Not as my particular take on it this week and it could be different next week, but rather this is what the truth is. It's what it's always been and it's what the truth will be a hundred years after all of us are dead and buried and gone. That's what it is to keep the faith. You want it to remain unchanged throughout the course of your life. Perhaps, yes, we reform our beliefs here and there as we study scripture throughout our lives, but the essentials are fixed and unchanged and they are settled. Do not fiddle with them. That's what it is to keep the faith. Paul said at the end of 1 Timothy 6.20, Oh, Timothy, he says, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. To keep the faith intact, you have to guard it. And to guard it, you've got to know it. And that's why our confession, the Westminster Confession, the catechisms, they help us so well to do that. To understand the clean biblical doctrines that have been worked out by our forefathers as the Lord Jesus has guided his church into the depths of Scripture. To keep those clean doctrinal categories in our thinking, to keep them intact. They help us to know scripture, to know the faith, and to keep it intact. And when we die, if we do that, we can say with the Apostle Paul, I have kept the faith. I have finished the race. I have fought the good fight. Remember how Paul felt about people that changed the gospel? He told the Galatian churches, I'm astonished, I marvel, you're turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. That means to change it. They want to change it. And he calls down the curse of God twice on them for doing that. When some trouble you, I want to warn you about that, dear ones. Listen, when some trouble you, and they will, and they want to change the gospel, and they will, don't let them. Don't let them. If we're quiet and we don't say anything, when people want to change, pervert, distort the gospel, we're not keeping the faith. When Paul heard it denied, he went to war. He went to battle for it. And that's why he can say, I have kept the faith. My conscience is clear. I defended the truth when it was attacked. And then finally, point number three there, verse eight. The grand homecoming, verse eight. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not only to me but also to all who have loved his appearing. The final judgment is yet future. It happens on the day that Jesus returns to the world. Historically, y'all need to know this, historically the Christian church 
has not looked forward to a rapture followed by seven years of war, followed by a millennial kingdom where we have a rebuilt temple and redemptive history for some unknown reason does a giant U-turn and we go back to Old Testament sacrifices. That is not what the Christian church historically has looked forward to. What we look forward to is the second coming. And everything happens when he comes back. At the second coming, the dead are raised. The final judgment, new heavens and a new earth, the eternal state begins. But for true believers, the final judgment's already happened at the cross. Galatians 3.13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse in our behalf. The curse of my law-breaking, which would have damned me at the last day, at the last judgment, has already been taken care of by my curse-bearer, Christ. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also suffered once for us, the just for the unjust, that he would bring us to God. Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not with him also freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? You know what that's talking about? That means at the last day. Who will bring a charge of sin against me at the last day. It is God who justifies who is he that condemns. In other words, no one can. No one can. Great theologian Robert Raymond said this, quote, by God's act of justifying the sinner through faith in Christ, the sinner, as it were, has been brought before the time to the final judgment and has already passed successfully through it, having been acquitted of any and all charges brought against him. Justification then, properly conceived, contributes in a decisive way to the Calvinistic doctrine of assurance and the eternal security of the believer. Those who die in Christ can know without a doubt, with absolute infallible certainty, that there is laid up for them the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to them on that day, and not just to them, but to everyone who loved his appearing. Everyone that was longing for the day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. This world has got too much pain, too much heartache, too many tears. Just come back and bring it to an end. We love the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we've seen here in this great passage, Paul's musings about death. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. There is in the future waiting for me in heaven the crown of glory, the crown of, crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will not only give to me, but to everyone who loves his appearing. That's assurance, isn't it? Isn't that, don't you want to die like that? I told you at the beginning, I get a front row seat to the biggest events in people's lives. Births, baptisms, professions of faith, weddings, and funerals. I became a Christian when I was about 18 years old, so about 30 years have come and gone. Every time I see another elderly church leader that I've looked up to for years betray the truth, have another moral collapse, or turn away from Christ, my heart sinks. And the internet brings all of them right into your face. I'm not going to give a list of names, but I want to tell you there are many books I used to have on my shelves. I just threw them in the garbage. R.C. Sproul was one of my heroes and still is. 
When many of his own friends and comrades turned against the gospel, I heard him say that he had many times sat in his office and cried. He was, to quote him, what he said, I was losing my friends right and left. But he's one of my heroes because the, na- the man never wavered on the gospel, not once that I know of, ever. What a joy it would be to end our days and have such wonderful confidence and anticipation of our life's final act, the drink offering being poured out, the last moments of my days, to be a blessed and wonderful thing. I've kept the faith. I finished the race. I did what I was supposed to do. The time of my departure is coming, and I'm going to heaven, and I can't wait to get there. So I want to read it to you one last time, and we'll close it with prayer. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let's pray. Father, God of heaven and earth, thank you for this dear man, a man who admitted in his own letters that are inspired that the very things he hated, he often did. And yet, in the overarching scheme of his life as a believer, he did fight the good fight. He stood for what was right. He did not waver when it mattered most. Lord, let us endeavor to live such a life in the power of your spirit and to know that in all the ways that we have failed and will fail, that Christ's blood and righteousness will forgive even us of that. Bless us, Lord, as we take communion together and as we sing as we have our fellowship meal and we pray that our fellowship would be sweet as we contemplate that great crown of righteousness that will be ours when Jesus comes back. We ask in his name, amen.